Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. So, 1 Timothy, and we're going to pick it up at verse 18. Verse 18 of 1 Timothy chapter 1. It says, This charge I commit to you, son Timothy. Now, if you had not read the first uh, portion of chapter 1, you would, and you just dived in right here, verse 18, you would not know what Timothy, or excuse me, what Paul was talking about. So what charge is Timothy talking about? Well, going back to verse 3, it was the charge to Timothy to remain in Ephesus. And so right away there you have to ask your question, a question, why does Paul need to write a letter to his young protege, Timothy, to remain in Ephesus? And although we're not told, I think the answer is obvious, is because probably Timothy was tempted to leave and to give up ministry there. Now, if you know anything about Ephesus, Paul had founded the church in Ephesus In Acts chapter 19, we're told that he was reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. And he did that for two years. In uh, Acts chapter 20, in Paul's own words, he says that he ministered at Ephesus for three years. So Paul had been there for quite a considerable amount of time, building up the church, raising up elders, teaching the body. You know, these are new believers, teaching them how to follow the Lord and, and, and just guiding them and being a shepherd to them. Well, in Acts chapter 20, Paul was led to continue his missionary travels because after all, Paul wasn't a pastor that just stayed in one place. He was, a, he was a church planning pastor. He was a missionary. And so he felt called to continue his missionary travels. And he headed for Macedonia. And in Acts chapter 20, at some point, he felt like, man, I need to go back to Jerusalem to be there in time for the feast. And so he headed back to Jerusalem. And on his way back, he stopped at a place called Miletus. And he sent for the elders of the church of Ephesus at Miletus. And in Acts chapter 20, verse 29, he kind of gave a prophecy to the church leaders there in Ephesus. He said, For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. So Paul was kind of prophesying, hey, this is what's going to happen. These men are going to come into this fellowship. They're going, to, they're going to be teaching false things. They're ravenous wolves. They're going to be destroying the faith of many. And so he was warning the elders there at, uh, of Ephesus, of the church at Ephesus. And uh, Paul's first letter that we're reading here today was probably written about 10 years after that prophetic event where he was prophesying that. And it had evidently, at some point... Paul had instructed Timothy to stay in Ephesus while Paul continued on in his missionary travels. Well, sadly, Paul's prophecy regarding the church of Ephesus had come true. Men had risen up among the Ephesians, and they were men who wanted to be teachers, men who wanted to be someone special. They were drawing people after themselves. And so often when you have false teachers springing up in a church, that's what they do. It's, you know, it, it's, it's, it's one thing to have, you know, to go astray in your own doctrine. But so many times that people do that, they try to draw people after themselves. They want a following. And, uh, and apparently, evidently, that was what was happening at Ephesus. And if you understand, Timothy was a young man. And ministering in that kind of environment was hard. It wasn't easy. It was difficult. Timothy undoubtedly had opposition. You know, probably many of the older people in Ephesus considered Timothy as being wet behind the ears. If you know that phrase. Ah, he's just wet behind the ears. He's just a young guy. He's a, in my age, they could say he was a snot nose. You know, basically, just a young kid, you know. And so he was probably not respected because we know that Paul had told Timothy later on, hey, don't let anyone despise your youth. So we know that that was an issue that Timothy dealt with. Timothy was discouraged. Timothy probably, uh, well, we know that he had stomach issues. You know, Paul says, hey, drink a little wine for your frequent ailments. Uh, probably, uh, this guy, I can just imagine, he was probably a guy that just, you know, he, 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 he ministered and, and tried to do the best he can, and then he would go home and he'd, have, he'd just have heartburn, you know, and just have stress, just stress, and it was affecting his body. And, and so probably 
Timothy wanted to throw him in the towel. He probably just wanted to give up and leave Ephesus. And so this whole letter that, that, Timothy, or that Paul wrote to Timothy was a letter to encourage Timothy and also to give him some instruction. Now, I listened to the message last week, and I was really encouraged by it. And, and Luke, you did a great job in covering uh, chapter 1. Um, but I have to kind of go back just to kind of get us into where we're at here in verse 18. So in the beginning of chapter 1, Paul had urged Timothy to remain in Ephesus. And that word charge, uh, the reason why he had urged him to was to charge that they teach no other doctrine. And that they were those people had sprung up. Uh, these self-proclaimed teachers. And as Luke pointed out, they were teaching fables. They were teaching endless genealogies. I mean, it's just basically stuff, you know, that uh, ended up causing disputes rather than building up the body of Christ. And people were straying from the faith and they were turning aside to idle talk. You see, it wasn't like these guys were there saying, Jesus isn't Lord. And, you know, it wasn't that they were like being teaching anti-messages about Jesus, but they were getting carried away with idle, useless discussions. Things that weren't building up the faith of the believers, but were causing disputes. They were what I like to term majoring on the minors. You know, the major thing is faith in Christ Jesus. That's that's faith in Christ. That's that's the major thing. Let's focus on that. But too often, people start focusing on all these side issues, and it can end up causing people to drift from their faith and can lose focus. And evidently, that was what was coming, what was happening. And, and so Timothy, he was growing discouraged. He wanted to give up. And so Paul urged him to remain faithfully at Ephesus so that he could command, not give them an option, but command those others not to teach what I call junk theology, stuff that doesn't mean anything. Timothy wasn't to be polite. You know, he wanted to give them an, off, uh, an option. He, was, he needed to command them. That's what Paul says. Command them not to teach these things that only resulted in disputes. Timothy needed to get into the battle for the souls of men and women at Ephesus. You know, when I look at Timothy, I look at what Paul wrote to Timothy, and I go, you know what? I think Timothy was probably a lot like me, or I'm, I'm probably a lot like Timothy. I, I don't like confrontations. I would rather avoid confrontations with the church at all, or with people within the church at all costs. But what Paul was trying to get across to Timothy is that the stakes are too serious for him not to remain there and confront these teachers because the lives, the spiritual lives of these people were at stake. These men were troubling the faith of many and they were getting them to take their eyes off of Jesus and onto worthless issues. Paul says, man, you've got to command them not to do that. And so then in verse 11, Paul reminded Timothy that Paul himself, I mean, he had been commanded. He had been given uh, the message, the gospel message by God himself. God had, had given Timothy or given Paul this ministry. And he reminded Timothy there in verse 11 that the Lord had enabled Paul to do the ministry. It's one thing when God tells you to do something. But you know, when God tells you to do something, he also equips you for it. He, he enables you to do it. And that's what Paul was trying to remind Timothy. And then that he was also trying to remind Timothy that Jesus had put Paul into the ministry because Paul was counted faithful. And, you know, you, you go, well, what was Paul faithful in? I mean, was there something specific? You know, we're not told. You go search the We're not really told what Paul was faithful about, what specific thing we're not told. Um, why are we not told? Well, I think it's because being faithful to the calling is more important than the calling itself. Being faithful, whatever the Lord's given you to do, it may be a small, maybe you consider it's a small thing in the church or whatever, some ministry, some calling that God's given you. The important thing is being faithful. As God says, if you're faithful in the little things, I'm going to give you bigger things to be faithful in. So whatever you're called to do, man, just faithful. And that's what Paul is trying to remind Timothy and encourage him to remain faithfully in ministry there at Ephesus, even though ministry is difficult. So often when it's difficult or when there's opposition, man, it's, it's so tempting to want to give up. But Paul says, remain there, even though it's difficult, even though you're being opposed. And so there in verse 18, he says, This charge I commit to you, son Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. Now that 
uh, temp, that, that charge, that word charge, is, it's a military command. And you kind of sense he's, he's giving him a military command like a commanding officer would to a soldier. And he's using the term waging warfare. He's trying to get something across to Timothy. But he also addresses Timothy as son. Do you see that there? This charge I commit to you, son Timothy. Now, Timothy was not Paul's biological son, but he was a son in the faith. And he says, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you. Again, that's something that Timothy and Paul would have known. We don't know what those prophecies were. We don't know who prophesied over Timothy. But undoubtedly, God had called Timothy and the prophecies had confirmed God's calling. And Luke pointed this out last week. Timothy's mother was a believing Hebrew and his father was an unbelieving Greek. And Timothy's mother, Eunice, and his grandmother, Lois, they had become born again in their Ephesus, and they had raised Timothy in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. In fact, in 2 Timothy 3.15, Paul writes this to Timothy, From childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures. So if you understand that, what that means is Timothy, as, from the young, earliest age, he had been taught the Scriptures. He had that Christian influence of his mother and his grandmother in his life. They had been steering him toward living a useful life for Christ. It's such an, you know, you, you parents, don't, don't, don't downplay your role, your influence in the lives of your children. They're your ministry to, to steer them towards living for Christ. Timothy had been prophesied over. What is prophecy? 1 Corinthians 14.3 He who prophesies speaks edification and exhortation and comfort to men. Man, Timothy had been built up. That's what edification is. It's building up. God's going to use you in a mighty way, Timothy. That's what his mother and grandmother saying. God's got a plan for you. You know, my mommy used to always say that to me. I'd get into trouble because I, I, I did get into trouble for a while. And, and I'd get caught. And I always got caught. And then when I get caught, God would, or my mom, it was probably God speaking through her, would say, you know what? God's got his hand on you. He's not letting you get away with that sin. He, he, and, and she just kept drilling it into me. And, and it's so, don't downplay your role, your influence in the lives of your children. And so Timothy had this, man. He was encouraged by his parents. They exhorted him, by his mom and grandmother anyways. They, they, they just were encouraging him and steering him in that direction. And now Paul is saying, hey, remember those prophecies that were spoken over you? Timothy, don't give up the fight. You're in a battle. And so Paul says in verse 18, This charge I commit to you, son Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. Timothy, you need to remain at your post, serving faithfully, not only because God has called you, not only because He's going to enable you as He enabled me, Timothy, not only because the faith of many are at stake, but Timothy, because you're a soldier of the cross. You're a soldier. This is a battle. This isn't, this isn't child's play. Soldiers don't have the luxury of picking and choosing what battles you're going to fight. You know, well, I'm not going to go to Iraq. I'm going to just stay here. In the, no, if, you're, if you're, you get you know, drafted, you get sent over, you're going. You don't have a choice. You don't have the luxury of, of deciding how long you're going to serve there or where you're going to serve. You're a soldier. You're commanded to go fight. And that's what you've been trained for. That's what you've got to do. That's what you're expected to do. Well, you and I, we're soldiers of the cross. Let me ask you this this morning. Do you consider yourself a soldier? Because you are. Each one of us are. It's not just the pastor. We're all soldiers. You know, I, I have a lot more respect today, now, in this day and age, for the reservists, you know, the men and women that serve in the armed forces reserves. I have a lot more respect for them. But when I was in the Coast Guard and I was an active duty person, we had a nickname for them. We called them weekend warriors. It was like, man, these guys, they come in on the weekend. They put, you know, they, they put on their little Coast Guard uniforms or Army uniforms, whatever, and they play Army or they play soldier for a while. And then when Sunday's done, they go home. They, they, they get to go home and, you know, relax and everything. We're there. 
You know, you, we're not going anywhere. This is where I'm stationed. And so we kind of, I anyways, had an attitude towards them. Oh, those weekend warriors, here they come again, you know. Again, I have a lot more respect for them now because a lot of those are the men and women that are fighting overseas right now. I, I don't consider them weekend warriors anymore. But back then I did. But you know what? Let me ask you this. Are you a weekend warrior when it comes to being a soldier for Christ? Or are you active duty? Man, are, are, you, are you in the battle and you realize it's a battle and you realize you've been called to this? Or it's like, you know what? I'm going to do it for a little while and uh, as soon as this is done, man, I'm going to go do my own thing again. I used to work with a guy back in, in uh, the early 80s and uh, he was older than me and uh, he had fought in Vietnam and he uh, was telling me all about these movies and I never saw the movies like Hamburger Hill. I don't know if you ever... I'm not recommending it, but... I never saw the movie, but he said, I was there. I was part of that thing. He was telling me all this stuff. And uh, he would say, you know, we, we, would, we would get commanded to take a hill. And so we'd, we'd lose people fighting. You know, it would be bloody battle. You'd, you'd take that hill. Finally, you'd capture that hill. You know, you, you'd have control of that hill. And then a command would come in, back down, give up the hill. And it's like, man, we just fought. People died for this. And now we have to back out. And that happened very often, I guess, in Vietnam. And I can imagine if you had to do that, you know, after a while and seeing brothers, you know, people around you, comrades and stuff, being killed, you know, for for that, you know, you you die to win a spot and then you you give it up to the enemy. I would wonder, or I can imagine after a while, it'd be kind of just easy to wonder, man, you know, am I just a pawn of politicians? Is this a just war? And, you know, there were a lot of people that did struggle with that. Is Vietnam a just war? Well, for you and I, we don't have that issue. Our warfare is a good warfare. Why? Because we're fighting for the souls of men and women. We're giving them the gospel. You know what the gospel is? It literally means good news. And it's, it's, it's the greatest. I have never led a person to Christ and had them come back to me and go, man, I wish I had never accepted Christ. I wish I had never made that decision. I've never ever, not that I've led hundreds and thousands, but I've led some people to the Lord. I've never once had someone come back and go, man, I wish I had never made that decision. You know, I've heard just the opposite. Man, I am so thankful that I came to the faith in the Lord. Because it is good news. We're fighting a good warfare. Timothy, you're a soldier of the cross, but it's a good battle. It's a just battle. It's an important battle. So how do we fight the good fight? Verse 19, having faith in a good conscience. Faith, faith that God is in control. You need to know that when you're facing opposition. You need to know that when things are difficult, when things are going against you. Man, God is in control. You need to have faith in who Jesus is. Because you're going to be teach, hearing some bad teaching, some things that, you know, Jesus isn't the Savior. You're going to be hearing, you need to have that faith. Jesus is who he says he is. You need to have faith in the truth of God's word. That is being attacked today. God's word is being attacked left and right today. We need to have faith in that. So you need faith to, fight, to wage this warfare, and you also need a good conscience. What is he talking about? What is Paul referring to? Conscience, it's that part of your soul that distinguishes between what is morally good and morally bad. We all have a conscience. And our conscience distinguishes between good and bad. And it prompts you and I to do the morally good. And it warns you and I to avoid the morally bad. It's what we call your inner compass. We all have one. When you follow your inner prompting, and the Holy Spirit works with our consciences, but when you follow your inner prompting to do what is morally good, your conscience commends you. You have a a good, clean conscience. I did the right thing. But when you disobey your inner compass, and we all have done that before, we've all done things that we know we shouldn't have done, that's your conscience speaking to you. Then your conscience condemns you, and you have a bad conscience. And if you ignore your conscience too long, you can end up with what the Bible calls a seared conscience. It's no more sensitive. It's, it's just dull. And, and you're still continuing to choose the morally bad, but it no longer condemns you anymore. That's what a seared conscience is. We have to be very careful not to allow that to happen in our lives. Well, serving the Lord in Ephesus, Timothy's going to need faith, and he's going to need a good, com- a good conscience. 
how do you maintain a good conscience? I, one, of the t- one of the moments Luke was speaking last week, he just said, basically, when you sin, man, just repent. That's how you maintain a good conscience. When your conscience condemns you, repent. Keep short accounts with God. And also, follow your conscience. As the, as the Holy Spirit's using your conscience to guide you, listen and do what your conscience. You know, don't violate your conscience. Having a good conscience is so important because the enemy of our faith is going to try to neutralize and demoralize the Lord's servants. Oh, man, you're, you're telling people about the Lord and, and you just did that? Or you sinned back then? How can, you, how can you call yourself a Christian? And the enemy will try to demoralize us and get us to the point where we won't do anything because we've got a guilty conscience. We can't, I, I can't talk to that person because I struggle with the same thing. No, that's a guilty conscience. So you need to have a good conscience. Verse 19, he says, "...which some having rejected concerning the faith have suffered shipwreck, of whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I delivered to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme." Who Hymenaeus or Alexander were, we're not told, and we're not even told what they did, but it must have been pretty serious, uh, because it caused, or it must have also caused people to stumble in their faith, because he's calling them out by name. Those two guys, you know, um, there are times when that's appropriate. When the spiritual lives of others are at stake, you know, when they are ravenous wolves, as Paul was describing in Acts 20, you know, hiding in sheep's clothing, clothing, they need to be exposed. Watch out for those guys. Stay away from them. Hymenaeus and Alexander were those savage wolves that Paul had predicted that would come into the church there at Ephesus. And they were after the flock of God. And so Paul's not pulling punches. And so Paul delivered Hymenaeus and Alexander over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. What does that mean to deliver over to Satan? It means putting them outside of the parameter of the church's protection outside of the parameters of the church's control, and outside the parameters of the church's fellowship. In other words, it's just letting them go into the world, which the world is Satan's domain. Just, okay, you're going to continue in that? All right, well, go ahead. I mean, just go. It's, it's, It's just letting go of them, basically. It's basically backing away and allowing them to run the course that they've chosen. Now, if you and I, if we were the only church here in town, Calvary Chapel, Rochester, you know, I got a call last night at, I don't know, 9 or 10 o'clock from the hospital. And it's funny because my son, one of my sons, I don't know why Luke doesn't do that, but one of my sons calls me from the hospital. And so it always says Chad. I don't know why I just got him in my phone as Chad. So whenever Chad calls me, oh, hey, Chad, how's it going? And then it's like, it's just someone calling from the hospital. And that happened at about 10 o'clock or so, something like that. And last night, the phone's ringing. I'm like, Chad's calling me. Hey, Chad. And it's this lady. She goes, are you the Calvary Church? And I go, well, um, yeah, there's like three or four of us. Which one do you want? She wanted the Calvary Episcopal Church. I said, well, I said, that's not us. And so she said, okay. So sometimes I've had conversations, good conversations with people. But in that case, she just, like, she just wanted to talk to someone at Calvary Episcopal. So she hung up. You know, if we were the only Calvary, if we were the only church here in town, and we delivered someone over to Satan. Someone's just refusing to repent of their sins. They're continuing habitually in sins. They've been warned. They've been encouraged. You know, we've, we've done the whole process of trying to, to, to get them to repent of their sins and to change, and they refuse to. We would say, okay, we, we can't fellowship with you. You're choosing your, your course, and we back away from them. If we were the only church in town, we'd probably get the desired result. The desired result is eventually the Holy Spirit would convict them. They'd, they'd want to repent of their sins, and, and we'd restore them. Because it's not like, ex, you know, people talk about excommunication. It's not like, you're done. We're, we're done with you. It, it's, the purpose is restoration. We want you to, to come to a point of repentance, and we're going to gladly receive you back into here. Well, if we were in the only church in town, that would probably work. But, you know, in our culture today, you know what happens? Somebody has a problem here. We try to discipline, we try to, we try to encourage them, whatever. And they'll just stop and go to the church, the Calvary down the road, who doesn't know anything about them. And they come in, and who knows? They say, man, that church over there, they're just a bunch of hypocrites. They just, they're terrible people. They don't know. So they just, you know, and unfortunately in our culture, that happens. 
I, you know, I, I've never gotten a phone call from a pastor saying, hey, there's a person coming to your church now. I want to give you a little bit of background about that. doesn't happen. I have to admit, I've never done that either. But we haven't had issues where people have, we haven't really haven't had that kind of an issue yet. But in, in our culture, people just go down to the next street or next church down the street. Sometimes it's the next street, but usually it's just down the road there. Now in chapter 2, Paul begins to instruct Timothy on how the church at Ephesus should function. So he's encouraged him. Now he's going to give him some instruction. Verse 1. Therefore, I exhort first of all that, suppl- that uh, first of all that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority, that they may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. Supplications. It means requests to God. It means asking God for something. Philippians 4, 6. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And so it's asking God for things. The word prayers, it's kind of a general word, but it's the act of offering prayers in a worship setting. You know, we're praying here at church. That's what he's talking about. Intercessions. It's requests made to God on behalf of others. See, we're not only to be praying for ourselves and our needs, but we're also to be praying for the needs of others around us. And then, of course, giving of thanks. You know, thankfulness or an attitude of gratitude should mark the life of each one of us. We should all, as Christians, we should have an attitude of gratitude. We should be thankful people for all that the Lord's blessed us with. And so he says there... um, I exhort, first of all, that all supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. Praying for all men. Praying for family. Praying for friends. Praying for co-workers. Praying for acquaintances. But you know what? It doesn't end there. All men. That means even praying for difficult people. People that are giving you problems in your life. Maybe it's a neighbor or a coworker or something or a boss. Even praying for your enemies. Of course, lawyers and IRS are excused from that, but no, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. We're to be praying for all men. And he even includes kings and those who are in authority over us. Does that seem hard for you today to pray for those who are in authority over us and our government today, all the things that they do, the things, you know, the things that they say. Listen, Ephesus was not a democratic society. Ephesus at the time was ruled with an iron fist by the Roman Empire. They didn't have the best government there. The emperor at this time was most likely Caesar Nero. Now, later on, Nero severely persecuted Christians killing them alive. I mean, he, was, he, he tortured Christians. At this point, they were probably, Christians were not, that, that level of persecution was not taking place at this point. But the point here is that Paul doesn't make any qualifications. He says you should be praying for all men. Good and the bad. The ugly. Whatever. Praying for all men. Even those in authority. Why? That we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. And you, do you want inner peace and inner quiet in your own life, in your own heart, in your own relationships? Pray for men. Pray for all men. Pray for all difficulties. Pray through your problems. You'll have that inner peace if you do. I know too many people that have these issues with other people. You want to you want to you want to go home at night and just have a you know, just let it go? Well, pray for people. Because that's how, that's how that happens. If you want inner peace and quiet, pray for all men. Pray through the difficulties. If you want external peace and quiet, pray for all of those who are in authority over you, that they would be inclined to allow you and I to exercise our free exercise of religion. And pray for them. Pray for their salvation. Pray that they would have godly counselors that would give them you know, advice to make the right choices that would allow us, not to give us a special treatment, but allow you and I to worship what we're doing today freely. Sharing the gospel with people. Bringing your Bible to work. Whatever it is, you know, that we'd have that freedom. You want external peace? Pray for those who are in authority over us. 
verse uh, 3, For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our, fa- our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. You know, this is an important thing to understand. There is not a person alive who does not need to be prayed for. There's nobody who doesn't. Now, sometimes I ask, you know, on Wednesday nights, is there anybody having prayer requests? And, you know, two or three of you will raise your hand. A lot of you just, you never raise your hand. It's like, no, I don't need any prayer. Well, I know that you need prayers. But all persons alive, there's no one that does not need to be prayed for. And not only that, but all of our prayers should include their salvation. We don't just pray for their big toe to get better. If they don't know the Lord, we pray that they also come to a relationship with Jesus Christ. I'm thinking about toes. I don't, know why, I don't know why I'm thinking about toes and feet today. but <laughs> God desires all men to be saved. Do you understand that? God doesn't desire certain bad people to be damned, you know, to, be, to go to hell. God desires all men to be saved. We're getting, or just listen to this, Ezekiel 33.11. God's saying this, Say to them, As I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways, for why should you die, O house of Israel? That's God's heart. Second Peter three nine, the Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some count slackness, but is long suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God desires all men to be saved. We should be praying for God's will to be done. You know, sometimes when you pray, you say, well, "Pray that the Lord's will will be done." I can guarantee God's will. If you're praying for somebody for their salvation, you're praying in accordance with God's will because God's willing that they become saved. And God answers those prayers. So don't get discouraged. Continue faithfully praying. My wife prayed 20 years for her sister to come to the Lord. And finally, she came to the Lord. It took 20 years. But it was a faithful praying for him, praying. So don't give up. Don't grow discouraged in your prayer life. Verse 5, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle. I am speaking the truth in Christ and not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and in truth. There's not a person alive who does not need Prayer, and there's also not a personal life who does not need a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. Jesus didn't say, I am a way, a truth, and a life. He did say, No man comes to the Father but by me. Why am I kind of, you guys are like, I know this, but why am I emphasizing it? Because we need to remember, as you're interacting with people in this world, there's no one who's too wealthy. There's no one who's too successful. They might try to give you that impression, but there's no one who's too successful. There's no one who's too powerful or too intelligent or even too evil that does not need salvation in Jesus Christ. Every man, woman, and child alive needs faith in Christ Jesus, needs that personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And so they need our prayers and they need our intercessions for them. Verse 8, I desire, therefore, that the men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. Now, in that day and age, and actually even today, there's this Jewish notion that the temple at Jerusalem uh, was the only place that prayer should be offered. And so if you were anywhere else in the world, you were to pray in the direction of Jerusalem. Now, there's no temple there today, but I, we were on an airplane flying to Israel, and at a certain time, the, the Orthodox Jews got up from their seats, and they went over to certain visit, very visible spots on the airplane. They put their phylacteries on, and they started praying towards the, wherever the plane was flying, towards the direction of Jerusalem. Uh, that's the notion now. And of course, you and I as believers in Jesus Christ, we know that we can pray anywhere. And you can pray as you're brushing your teeth. You can pray in your car. You can pray at work. You can pray as you're walking down the road. You can pray right now. You know, we don't have to be in a certain place for God to hear us. We understand that. This isn't what Paul's referring to. That's true, but that's not what Paul is referring to. The context here is in the churches. And what Paul seems to be speaking about is that in all the churches everywhere, um, that the men should be leading the worship services, particularly the prayer services. 
Lifting up holy hands. What does that mean? Well, spreading hands towards heaven, it's an attitude because it's not like we all, okay, guys, we all have to lift up our hands and pray. You know, you can pray in any position. But what it is is having an attitude of directing your supplications towards heaven. Because you see, guys, we have this attitude of I can, I can, I'm a can-do guy. I can make things happen. And we sometimes don't have that humility of just surrender to the Lord. I see women that seem to have an easier time. It's like, oh, I surrender to you, Lord. The guys are like, I, yeah, I surrender to you, Lord. <laughs> you know? <laughs> but it, that's the attitude we're to have. It's an attitude of humbly being submitted to God's authority. And he says, lifting up holy hands. And that means clean hands in the sense of having dealt with your sin, not harboring unconfessed sin, without wrath, which means without anger, without contentions, and without doubting, prayers offered in faith. This is encouraging in the churches. Men, you need to be praying that. The men need to be leading the prayer in that regard. Verse 9, In like manner also, that the women adorn themselves in modest apparel with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold pearls, gold or pearls or costly clothing, but that which is proper for women professing godliness with good works. Again, the context is in the public assembling together the body of Christ. Dress yourself modestly. What that means is not too little, as in too skimpy, and not too much, as in being decked out to the point where, man, you're drawing attention. Look at, she's coming in here. Wow, look at that. She's just really decked out. Not so focused on the external while neglecting the hidden person of the heart. Right? Peter says that. The hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. And then Paul writes this in verse 11, Let a woman learn in silence with all submission. Boy, you can go all kinds of directions with this, but let me give you the Young's literal translation. It says, Let a woman in quietness learn in all subjection. And that word quietness, it means without contention. It doesn't mean you can't speak. It means just without contention. Quietness of spirit. Let a woman learn... Uh, in, let a woman in quietness learn in all subjection, without contention, in submission to God's plan of authority. Verse 12, And I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. Again, the word translated silence here means in quietness of spirit, without contention. Paul is not saying women must not speak or teach in the church. He's not saying that. What Paul is instructing the churches is that there's a God-given order and rule of authority in the church. And God's intent here is that the men are to be the spiritual leaders of the churches. And it does not imply any inferiority of women compared to men. It does not imply that women are less spiritual. In fact, truth be told women generally tend to be much more spiritually sensitive than men do. And they seem to be more in tune with their spiritual sides. But this is a God-given order of authority. And then Paul gives the reasons why. Verse 13, For Adam was formed first, and then Eve. So there was an order based on creation. Adam was given original authority over creation. Remember, he was to tend the garden and name the animals that God had created. You know, at that point, Eve had not been created yet. Adam received his authority from God. Eve received her authority from Adam. Because God's first command, he gave authority to Adam, and his first command is in Genesis two sixteen and 17. It says, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may eat freely, But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. From the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Did you know that Eve was not created at that point yet? Adam received God's commandment first, and Adam had to pass uh, pass that on to Eve. He had to teach Eve. He He had to relay that to Eve. This is, I think, what Paul is trying to get across. Verse 14, And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was being deceived, fell into transgression. Again, Women are generally more spiritually sensitive, more in tune to the spiritual than men are. But because women are more spiritually sensitive, they can also, not necessarily, but they can also be spiritually deceived 
easier than men. Again, I'm, I'm using general terms. Okay, I'm not just this, you know, putting everybody in a in a certain category there. Generally speaking, Eve was deceived by the serpent. Adam wasn't deceived. Adam willfully disobeyed God's command, knowing he wasn't he wasn't tricked into it. He just willingly did it. Eve, on the other hand, was deceived, and she sinned. You know, the Bible, even though Eve's the one who sinned first, you know the Bible never blames Eve for sin entering the human race? Adam's the one who gets blamed for it. Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as through one man, that's Adam, sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all men sinned. Why is Adam singled out? Why is Adam blamed? Well, because Adam had the greater authority. And because Adam had the greater authority, he also had a greater responsibility. And because he's, he willfully did it, he's the one that got the greater blame. Eve didn't get that blame. Adam did. Verse 15, Nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness, and with self-control. That's a difficult verse. I'll just be up front with you. That's a hard one to translate. It's like, or a hard one to interpret. Uh, does that mean that, you know, they just need to make babies? Or, you know, what, what's the deal here? Well, I think, again, the literal translation sheds a little bit of light. It says, And she shall be saved through the childbearing if they remain in faith and love and sanctification with sobriety. The childbearing. You know, the woman being deceived fell into transgression, but through the woman, remember God's promise in Genesis chapter 3? Through the woman, the Messiah would come. What a blessing. Eve sinned first. Eve was deceived in sin, but through her, the Messiah was born into, into became a man. And, and we were redeemed through that. Now, some people, you know, I, I kind of breeze through those last few verses. Um, and some people really have a struggle with passages like this. Um, they would say, well, Paul's a sexist, or this is just a, you know, that sex, sexist culture, and it, things are different today. And, the, and people really have a hard time with these kind of passages like this. What about all the churches and denominations that have women leaders? What about them? Let me just give you my opinion. This isn't a thus saith the Lord, but this is Don. Thus saith Don. So you can take that and $2.50 and you might be able to get a regular coffee at Caribou. I don't know. but In my opinion, okay, in my opinion, it's a, that the fact that there are women leaders in churches and denominations is a sad testament to the fact that there are so many men that are missing an action in the church. The men aren't doing it, so who else? The women. Well, somebody's got to do it, and the women are doing it. It's a sad testament, and it's in, the same is true with, with women in the families. Men have abdicated their God-given, God-defined roles and authority, and so who else is there to do it? Somebody's got to do it. It's a sad testament to the spiritual state of men in our generation. Second, Again, in my opinion, it doesn't mean that those churches are illegitimate. And it's like, well, don't go to that church as a woman pastor. You know, oh, they're teaching Dr. Falstein. You know, I'm not going to say that. Let me give you a, a little illustration, and this may be kind of goofy to some of you, but it makes perfect sense to me. You know, I've got a ton of screwdrivers, and uh, I've used screwdrivers as pry bars, and they work perfectly. Well, up to a point. Um, I've, I've used screwdrivers for tent stakes. I've used screwdrivers for you name it. I've, they, they, they've, they've, they've worked for so many different things, but up to a point. I remember one time I was prying out. I was trying to take apart. I pulled a transmission out of one of my cars, and I didn't have a, a puller at the time. And so I got these screwdrivers, and I was trying to pull the transmission, the housing out from the bell housing. And, and uh, as I was doing it, uh, I grabbed my biggest screwdriver, and, I'm, and then I chipped the you know, it's a big screwdriver. I chipped the, the corner of the blade, and I'm like, ah. Oh. So I went to Sears. It was a craftsman. Got a new one. <laughs> Lifetime warranty. Hey, you know, <laughs> they don't ask any questions. But, you know, the thing is, I wasn't using it according to the manufacturer's purpose. And so I had problems with it. It didn't work. It wasn't designed to be a pry bar. Now, it works up to a point. It worked. But it wasn't designed for that. It was just designed to remove screws or to tighten screws. And you see, I look at women pastors in the same way. It works up to a point, but that's not God's design purpose for the church. 
It's not God's intended purpose. You know, you, you look back through history, there have been some exceptions, actually some notable ex- exceptions. This church used to be a Christian science reading room. When we first came in here, they had one plaque that said, God is love. And we thought, that's cool. In fact, I think it's even in our nursery still, God is love. Yeah, that's true. The other one was a quote over on this wall. And you can still kind of see a faded like square where the cross was. And it was some phrase that Mary Baker Eddy said, because she was the founder of the Christian science religion. And, uh, you know, uh, Seventh-day Adventist movement, that was started by a woman too, Ellen G. White. So there are some exceptions back through history. But, you know, for the most part, women pastors and leaders in churches, it's really been a, a more of a recent phenomenon you know, it, it basically started around the time of the feminism movement in the 60s and 70s. It really has. What am I saying by that? I'm not, I'm not trying to say anything. <laughs> but, you know, women generally, since then, in the world especially, not necessarily within Christian families, but in the world, generally speaking, women no longer want to be submitted to the authority of men. Why? You know, why, why should a man tell me what to do? Why should a man be in charge? You know, there, There's that whole attitude there. But it's not just that. Look at our generation today, and you see it. My wife and I notice it very often when we're at restaurants or we're at you know, different places. Children no longer want to be submitted to the authority of their parents. That's a relatively new phenomenon. There's a generation of kids that just they're not disciplined. And they do whatever they want to do. They're the center of the universe. And the parents let them be. There's students that no longer want to be submitted to the authority of teachers. You know, teachers are getting beat up in schools. Uh, things are, you know, they're being, they're being uh, you know, uh, battered and, and, and stuff in schools. And, and things, it's like, well, man, that never happened in my generation. I don't remember that. You know, you, teacher said something, you, you listen to her because she's an authority. But people are rejecting that authority. Children, students no longer want to be submitted to the authority of teachers. Citizens of cities no longer want to be submitted to the authority of police. We've just been seeing that recently. Citizens of states and countries no longer want to be submitted to the authority of their government because their governments are corrupt. Who wants to listen to a government that's, they're all, they're, they're just a bunch of crooks. They say, they tell us to do one thing and they're doing just the opposite. Who wants to be submitted to that? And you see there's a general trend of not wanting to be submitted to authority in the world. Do you know what? That's Satan's tactic. That was Satan's tactic in the Garden of Eden with Eve. <laughs> What? Don't listen to God. He's just trying to keep you under his thumb. He doesn't want you to be like him. Reject authority. You know, that's basically what the lie was. And so if you look at it in that sense, there's a general trend in our generation of people rejecting authority. Now, I'm not saying women pastors are rejecting God's authority because I want you to go there and go like, oh, man, this is the last time attending that sexist church, that pig, and all that stuff. I do think there's a reason God has created an order of authority in our society, in our marriages, in our families, and in our churches. And I think, if you be honest, we're seeing a move towards a rejection of all authority. It's not just the male woman rules. It's all authority. There's a, there's a rejection happening. Proverbs 30, verse 11 says, There's a generation that curses its father and does not bless its mother. There's a generation that is pure in its own eyes, yet it is not washed from its filthiness. There's a generation, oh, how lofty are their eyes, and their eyelids are lifted up. There's a generation whose teeth are like swords and whose fangs are like knives to devour the poor from off the earth and the needy from among men. I'm, I didn't get a whole lot of sleep last night. So <laughs> Listen, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> it's not an emotional verse. It's actually kind of a wow. <laughs> but I think we're living in that generation. And I think, and I'll be honest with you, I think this is the, gener- the last generation before Christ returns. I'm not saying Jesus is coming back in 19... Well, 2000, whatever. 
<laughs> I'd definitely be a false prophet if I say he's coming back in 1999. <laughs> you know, I'm not, I'm not saying that, but I am saying that I think we're seeing the last generation. I really, I really believe this with my whole heart, that we are drawing so close to the end. Yes, you can use screwdrivers as pry bars and a host of other implements, and I know that I've done that. But their intended purpose, what they were designed for, is by the manufacturer to tighten and remove screws. And God has a designed and intended purpose for men and women and their roles within the family and within the church. He's the manufacturer. I mean, we can argue it all we want. It's not, it's not me. It's not my opinion that, you know, this is the roles that God has for women and this is the role. It's God speaking, okay? I'm just sharing it basically with you. He's the manufacturer. And you know what? This world is falling apart. And I've learned a long time ago, although I don't always follow it, when you start building, you start doing stuff on your own and you start falling into problems, it's like, man, why isn't this working? Consult with the manufacturer, man. Get the manual out. You'll figure out, oh, I'm not doing it the right way. We have a, the manufacturer's manual right here. The Bible. Basic instructions before leaving planet Earth. It's the owner's manual. And I want to encourage you, and this is what we need to go back to. This is what we need to follow. So I want to encourage you with that. Why don't you stand up and let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I thank you for your word this morning. I thank you for each and every person here. Lord, I thank you for just what each person brings to this fellowship, Lord. And Lord, there is no second-class Christians here. There's no people that are... Uh, considered lower spiritual people than anybody else, Father. We all need each other. We all need those gifts and those callings, Lord, those, those abilities that you've given each one of us. And, Father, I just thank you for each person and, and how they fill and, and how they be, are a part of the body of Christ here at Calvary Chapel, Rochester. I pray your blessing upon them this coming week. Father, I thank you. Thank you for your word this morning. and. Uh, Lord, may you just uh, be glorified in our lives. Lord, may we remember to pray for those, uh, pray for all men, uh, and even those in authority over us, Father. So we thank you and we bless you, and it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.